But I think there's been this fear that exercise is somehow going to be dangerous. Uh, and it's quite the contrary. After that first day, when they say you have cancer, there's a new person born. I, th I think they don't really maybe understand how much it's going to help them. Each patient and each survivor is going to be experiencing different side effects, different experiences. The positive is that it's, it's never too late. Welcome to the REACH podcast, where you'll hear from researchers, doctors and patients themselves on how exercise, nutrition and lifestyle behaviors can reduce cancer risk and improve survivorship. I'm your host, Kieran Fairman. Hey, welcome back to the Reach Podcast, where you get new episodes every so often, whenever my schedule and or motivation allows. It used to be pretty cool, it was once a week, and then it was twice a week, and that was pretty infrequently, but we're back. Uh, today I'm talking to Torman Nilsson, who's a researcher at the Norwegian School of Sports Science. Um, really cool dude. We talk about some really interesting stuff in resistance training and cancer. Uh, specifically related to prostate cancer and some you know a lot of work in this area has kind of been global stuff like quality of life and moving into body composition um Tormer's group has actually done some really cool stuff in cellular work and and what that means kind of from the bigger picture perspective as well uh, we also talk about a really really important topic in the field particularly of exercise oncology right now in how we report our exercise trials so if you look at some of the publications, um, you know, in any field of exercise, you can report a study up to and beyond a year. And if you're talking about the exercise program, we kind of just generalize it and we're pretty vague in that, you know, we prescribed the program, it was periodized, it was individualized. Everyone did X amount of sets, X amount of reps. Everyone, you know, typically ran from at this intensity of their, you know, heart rate max or whatever your, your indicator is. But... In reality, um, if you look across that year, if you've got you know a couple of hundred participants, it's very unlikely that every single participant got every single set, every single rep, every single prescribed dose of exercise um, that they should have had. And particularly in the exercise oncology world, even more so during treatment, something like chemotherapy where um, it can cause dramatic fluctuations in energy and fatigue and nausea, understanding why people couldn't reach a certain dose of exercise understanding why you had to modify exercise whether it's you know normal stuff like muscle soreness maybe they got dizzy um, or even some treatment related issues maybe there was some nausea or, or extra fatigue from treatment being able to report those issues makes it um, easier for us to understand outcomes and it makes it better for clinicians who are reading our papers to understand what it's like to train someone in this area and what you can maybe expect in terms of dose modification. So really cool areas of, of research and, and topics that we talked about today. Um, I'm not going to repeat the conversation, I'm just going to jump into it. Um, so enjoy the chat and we'll chat to you maybe in a few weeks or months. Enjoy the show. So yeah, we'll, we'll start with, uh, you know, you've done some amazing work in prostate cancer. Your group has uh, you know, to my mind, really highlighted how to do high quality research in this area. And uh, I think you're, you're on to doing some really cool stuff moving forward. But let's backtrack a little bit and just talk a little bit about your own background um, and how you got into this field. 
Yeah, thanks. Um, and, and maybe that's my background is, is one of the keys for, for why we're doing what we're actually doing. Because uh, my background is, I mean, I did my undergraduate in, in more a sort of a general physical activity and health um, kind of direction. Um, but then on my master's studies, uh, I was actually recruited into to do more uh, muscle physiology work, working with um, uh, muscle biopsies and looking at responses to uh, to exercise, both sort of muscle damaging exercise, but also um, regular uh, strength training aimed to increase muscle size. Um, so that's that's where I started, I guess. Um, and I, I really saw myself sort of continuing down that path of working with uh, with muscle cellular uh, variables. Um, so I stuck around in the lab for a couple of years uh, working as a research assistant. Uh, and then this um, prostate cancer stuff was um, um, introduced to us through um, our collaboration, collaborators sorry, uh, at Oslo University Hospital. Because um, they were they were seeing these um, uh, late effects or side effects from from the androgen deprivation treatment that their patient were reporting uh, and that they felt weak and they were losing uh, muscular strength, so they contacted us for for starting um, a study where we wanted to go after these variables. And I remember at the time I didn't really think too much about the cancer stuff. Uh, this was more of a model of studying testosterone because that, my head was still sort of uh, doing muscle physiology work, I guess. Um, so, I, yeah, I, I think I had sort of really lab eyes. The first, um, at least uh, as I was writing the application for the position and uh, and uh, stuff like that. So, yeah, but I mean, working with, with these uh, guys, they really um, they really changed my perspective, I think. Um and um, yeah, that, that's that's where I've sort of saw the value of of doing um, persistence training and working with these patients, um, improving their uh, muscular fitness, and and just um, hearing back from the story they had to um, tell as the intervention um, was moving along. It was really inspiring. So that's where sort of they opened my eyes to the exercise oncology world. That's for sure. Yeah, it's interesting because I'm similar in that I came from. A sports performance background and working with kind of high level athletes and um mm. it's it's great seeing someone go from the 97 to the 98 percentile but mm. it's really powerful <laughs> in watching someone who's never worked out before particularly prostate cancer to go take them yeah. to a resistance training program and see how profound those mm. changes are the magnitude of changes is, is so much greater and there's so much more reward yeah, yeah. from that yeah, and it, and it really impacts their life. I mean, working with athletes is um, I'm not I'm not that, that much experienced in that actually. But the, we were sort of doing the basic sciences, uh, sciences. Uh, we're looking at um, muscle cellular variables. Uh, we don't really do muscle biopsies from athletes. Uh, they're kind of want to keep their muscle mass, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, um, just just looking at the impact that you're able to do. I remember especially this one guy. Um, I think this was. We did a 16-week intervention um, of structured uh, resistance training, and I think this was probably week 10 or week 12, sort of a bit into the intervention. And um, it's it's kind of common for Norwegians to have a sort of second home, like a cabin in the mountain or a summer house or something like that. And um, he's been up there working at his cabin with his uh, son-in-law, 
And he was so proud coming back from that weekend because uh, his son-in-law needed to take more breaks than he did. He was actually more <laughs> fit than his son-in-law. So, I mean, it, it's, it's stuff like this, stories like this that just um, keeps me motivated for, for pursuing this path, I think. We have, uh, yeah, there's uh, the impact of exercise is really um, tremendous in many of these guys. So uh, we'll, we'll kind of dig into your study and, and what you found and particularly some of the, the really interesting parts in the exercise prescription. But let's backtrack for people who, who aren't familiar with prostate cancer or its treatments. What's the rationale for, for strength training over other types of activity in this population? Um, what, do we, what do we see, when, when, uh, especially when these guys are put on androgen deprivation therapy, which lowers their testosterone level to, to castrate levels? Um, is it, it really impacts their body composition. Um, they they um, tend to increase in, in fat mass and they tend to lose muscle mass. Um, and that's, that's kind of normal with aging, but it really just speeds up the process of, of muscle wasting. Uh, maybe not to the um, sort of sarcopenic or ca- uh, cachexia level, but, but um, it, I think we're, we're going to be talking about a, sort of an um, an increased rate if you multiply your normal uh, rate by, I don't know, um, 30% or 40%, something like that. So it really increases the, the loss of muscle mass. Uh, and this is why strength training in particular, uh, which stimuli, is a potent stimuli for, for increasing muscle mass, is, um, is so important. Um, you might not uh, experience great increases in muscle mass as you are on treatment, but at least it can um, preserve the muscle mass that you got. That's what, that's what we've been seeing mostly actually. Um, so you, you, you attenuate the muscle loss and the loss of muscle mass that are seen in typically the control groups in, 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 uh, in several of the studies that are already published. So yeah, you kind of, you did this with, uh, you did this six weeks, 16 weeks of training, um, looking at how strength training can affect anything from, body composition and, and strength all the way down to cellular level, cellular outcomes, um, tuck muscle biopsies, all that stuff. Um, so we'll get to your outcomes, but the first thing, that, and I said this to you off air, what I love about your study design is the prescription because mm. for me, we, we oftentimes we see you know a 16, 24 and beyond week protocol that has one to three sets, eight to 12 reps, and that's the same every week for 16 weeks and beyond with mm. no real mm. discussion on period, periodizing the program or alternating the, the intensity or volume or even progressing the program across time. And yeah. what I love about your study in, in particular is the study design in relation to exercise prescription and how you designed the undulating program. So kind of touch mm. a little bit on, on what the rationale for was and what you think you know, even the pros and cons of that are. Yeah. Um, so <clears throat> the, the sort of planning of this study started um, actually before I was hired onto the study. Um, but we were looking at um, the, the studies that were out there. And, and back then it was only um, one of the first studies by Segal et al. And also um, the 2006 study by, uh, by Daniel Gilau was out. So we were looking at, um, and yeah, there were a few others um, sort of, they, they call it, it was labeled resistance training, but mostly with, with rubber bands and stuff like that. So um, it's hard to um, hard to know how stern is that exercise was and how much of a stimuli it would be on the muscle. So we were um, 
looking at what what was available out there and and sort of going through the the um, how, how you would go about prescribing exercise to to anyone that were interested in increasing muscle mass um, and back then things have changed a bit um, uh, lately but back then um, if you were aiming for muscle hypertrophy you were you would increase your training volume meaning that you would do uh, more repetitions uh, per week uh, pretty much uh, so a high training volume was associated with with increases in in the muscle mass so that that was the the background for why we did what we did but then we also know that the mechanical stimuli you get when you lift something heavier meaning that you cannot do as many repetitions um, is also a potent stimuli for for muscular growth um, so we wanted to combine sort of the best of two worlds if you like um, so we did the, sort of the standard 10 repetitions on on monday to increase the volume and then they did uh, uh, that was quite hard. That should be 10 repetitions with a weight that you were only able to lift 10 times. Uh, so we really pushed our um, participants um, quite well after some weeks of familiarization, of course. Uh, so since the Monday session was pretty hard, we did an easier set, um, session on typically uh, a Wednesday. And then on the Friday, we did we increased the, the resistance quite a bit. So they were only able to do six repetitions. And again, um, not seven, so six repetitions maximum, if you like. Um, so that just gives a slightly different um, training stimulus. And, and um, in, in theory, at least, it should um, really um, harvest the best of two worlds. Um, and, and in order to progress from week to week, we, uh, we didn't have a weekly progression in volume, but we had an increase from, uh, say, typically uh, one uh, session per ex sorry one set per exercise all the way up to three sets in, uh, per exercise so that's that's one of the limitations i think especially with our program uh, that at the end towards the end at least it was just too time consuming uh, i think we had we had our participants especially for the monday sessions where they just did a lot of repetitions we had a lot of exercises including on our program as well um, so they, they spent more than one and a half hour doing resistance training at the end, towards the end. Yeah. So that's, <laughs> that, that's tough. <laughs> we had a lead in period though. We didn't start there. Um, uh, but then again, I mean, given the, you said we were going to be talking about their outcomes later, but, um, if, if this was, if we did see a major benefit from this program, I, I would have no problem recommending it. But since we didn't report any additional increase to to what others have been reporting with, with a sort of a slightly lower volume um, there's um, uh, yeah it's it's hard to justify that an exercise program should take that long <laughs> so if you were to go yeah. back and and look at it again um, hmm. how would you adjust the training to to try and provide a stimulus without putting them in there for an hour and a half <laughs> well uh, if you look at our program we have a lot of exercises involving uh, involving the legs um, there is a lot of exercise in general but there are uh, I think there are five exercises in, in involving the legs because the, re the rationale for that was that we were doing muscle biopsies from from the thigh uh, so we wanted to, to we wanted to stimulate that a lot I think that was the rationale for that uh, but but then again if if you I think you you could benefit just as well by by keeping the 
the, the more focused exercise, depending on your exercise level, right? Sort of in a, in a clinical setting. But if you if you were to start um, resistance training from from no training background at all, I would definitely keep leg press and uh, maybe um, some of the other sort of um, exercises that target its targets the same um, area like the hip extenders and the knee extenders because they're important yeah. when, if you're going to do work on your cabin for instance like this guy I mentioned <laughs> earlier um so but just sort of cut it down to the to the very essential i think we we uh we, we went a bit overboard in in our um I, I think the number of exercises just could be um cut down a bit i mean we did we even did squats and uh they many of of the guys that we included were were quite of not that flexible. Yeah, <laughs> they didn't have the mobility to do a proper squat, and also their their shoulders was a bit stiff, so they couldn't really reach bar back and touch the bar. Um, so just just do it. Um, I don't know, simpler, I guess. Um, at least at least as a start. But I would definitely keep the undulating uh, periodization that we did, that we did. So we did a weekly undulating. Um, Periodization, meaning that we had sort of the ten repetitions and then the easier setting uh, sets and or session, and then uh, then also the the heavier uh, six repetition sets on on Friday. Uh, I think it's an, I, mean, I agree with you. It's 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 an interesting uh, concept concept, and we need to explore. Um, my background is in exercise physiology, so we need to explore uh, exercise prescription uh, better. If you're going to do a study, try to learn from from the existing literature and try to um, improve on that, not not just copy it, just try to do something else, change change it up a little bit. That's That would be my suggestion, I guess. Yeah, and I, I agree with you. It's, I, what I really like is what you were talking about, the easy day on a Wednesday. Um, I think one of the advantages of the undulating program, as opposed to traditional programs where, you know, you don't necessarily see it as much in research, but if you're going for eight to 12 weeks, typically you have some sort of a deload week to recover, you know, get rid of fatigue and get your energy levels back up before you target the next cycle. Whereas yeah. this almost has a lower quote unquote rest day built in where you're going lighter loads, still going mm. through the motions, but it allows you to recover for that higher intensity day. And that kind of one hypertrophy <coughs> rest and then higher intensity kind of strength uh, based efforts allows for that kind of fatigue to to prevent fatigue from accumulating i suppose yeah and and our experience is, is that these guys really um, they actually preferred the the heavier sessions so the six repetitions was actually preferred by by patients um, it could be of course that it was uh, just less time consuming <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I, I think they also enjoyed um lifting heavier weights uh, i mean we could it's it's so visual. You actually uh, put the pin lower in the weight stack, or you you put on more uh, more weights on on the leg press machine. So uh, I think they it made it made them feel good in a way, and they were that they were able to to lift and really able to push themselves. And so they they actually preferred um, the six repetition day uh, for for some reasons. Yeah, it's such a guy thing, isn't it? It doesn't matter how old you are, you're just <laughs> we're Neanderthals. Like put more weight on. <laughs> 
<laughs> of course, of course, and and uh, that's that's also the thing. You need really need to to focus on technique and hold them back, because because they will they will feed. That's for sure. <laughs> they they will uh, they will decrease the range of motion just to put on more weight. So so yeah, they're they're boys will be boys, I guess. Yeah. Um. <laughs> So let's talk about some of your results because some of them are, are really, really interesting. And you kind of touched a little bit on on um, kind of the strength and lean body mass. But give us an overview of what you found with this 16-week program in, in men with prostate cancer undergoing ADT. Mm. So we were actually quite surprised. Um, that's, of course, a, a biased statement. <laughs> because uh but it's biased because um i mean i was i was a trainer for for um, a number of these guys and we also had others um doing quality work as trainers for for our instructors for these guys um and we saw the effort that they put in um and and we could see that the weight stack was increasing and when they when they did their their exercises so we were really thinking that this was uh, going to revolutionize <laughs> the entire uh, body composition uh, debate in, in prostate cancer um, so we were actually quite surprised when we uh, when we um, when we did the analysis and we started looking at the the mean changes uh, and we saw that uh, they they achieved approximately just to put this in, into perspective more more than talking about uh, absolute values uh, these guys um, compared to a similar trial that we did in our uh, our facilities, including slightly elder, slightly more elderly but but healthy men, uh, they achieved approximately one third of the lean body mass increases. Wow! Um, yeah, yeah. So we were really surprised and slightly disappointed on behalf of all the guys that did such huge effort every every training session. Um, so yeah, they, they achieved approximately one third of what we sort of expected to to find. Um, but when you look, I mean, if if within the control group we didn't really see much change, and that's also quite uncommon for for these trials. Normally, that would be um, more of a decrease in in the control group, but uh, our guys were actually quite stable uh, for some reason. But the really the really um, fascinating uh, results are if you start looking at individual changes because we had we had responders to this program I mean we had one guy that that increased his lean body mass by four kilos um, and that's a lot that that's 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 more than double uh, the average that we saw in these uh, this healthy elderly men uh, but from the same um, intervention and we couldn't explain this by by um, the percentage of attended sessions or um, by their sort of accumulated increase in, in training resistance. But we had guys losing more than uh, one kilo of muscle mass within the training group. So we just had um, a huge variation uh, that we could not explain by any training variable uh, within our training group. And I think that's really, uh, that's really fascinating, actually. Yeah. Uh, and we also saw this in the control group. We had, uh, well, we have, of course, when you are randomized, when you sign up for an exercise study and you are randomized to control group, um, we, ha we had a few guys that were doing more exercise <laughs> post-intervention, <laughs> of course. I mean, I guess I would have done the same. I don't know. <laughs> but uh, so we had, yeah, the, they they did something really effective, really, because they, they also increased. 
pretty steady lead in my squad a lot. But we have um, we had a number of patients that were stable, and we had a number of patients that patients that just um, keep kept losing uh, lead body mass throughout these sixteen weeks. So uh, I think we um, just to backtrack our results a bit, we need to um, learn more about the effects of these uh, these drugs that they received. I mean the the androgen deprivation. Because uh, there seems, uh, in the same way, we have responders and less responders, uh, not to say non-responders, uh, to exercise. I think you have the same thing um, to um, the absence of testosterone or engine deprivation, and that really just that really just drives the in variation in an intervention effect uh, through the roof. Um, so the standard deviation that we observed was just huge. It's almost as if you know the the intervention itself is responsible for kind of mean changes and then almost genetic variation or genetics determine mm. a lot of the variation within it to, to be high responders mm. and, and mm. low responders. But also high and low responders to the treatment. So you actually have two opposite interventions going on. You have the androgen deprivation that causes muscle loss and then you have the um, resistance training that, that should cause muscle increases or muscle size increases so yeah i guess if you're a responder to a low responder to exercise and a high responder to to uh, androgen deprivation so to speak um i guess you're you're in trouble and i guess it's these guys we need to learn more about it also comes back to and there has been more recent calls of this of reporting the individual changes as well on top of mean changes within um our publications because as you said, what's you know the mean change is really important, but just as important as figuring out why, if someone goes through a sixteen week program, do they lose lean body mass? And mm. if we can move, coming back to what we're going to talk about, if we can move forward to to including that in reporting our outcomes, I think that adds further insight into you know what's going on. Yeah, exactly, and it, it just. Um it's just increased the significance of our work, I think. Uh, if, if we do a better job reporting what we're supposed to do and what we actually did, yeah, uh, that would really add a perspective to, um, uh, to our future studies. So I would highly encourage that, <laughs> of course. <laughs> um, so one of the other really cool aspects of your study is that you, you had muscle biopsies and... Uh, What's interesting about that is, depending on who I talk to, some people are like, you're going to do a muscle biopsy on someone who, you know, who's had cancer and they're going through all this. Is it too much? And then there's other people mm. going, listen, they get <laughs> poked and prodded and they're in all sorts of treatments. They're, they're used to this stuff. Um, did you yeah. have trouble getting people to to sign up and come up to the biopsies? Um, no, because it would in our study it was optional. So, so men that that had no problem with it, they they signed up for it, and others uh, didn't. But uh, every one of them, it was more sort of a, um, if I, yeah, avoiding discomfort, I guess. Um, so they they were some of them were fed up by being poked everywhere, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, whereas others, that was the reason for for poking in the so to speak, <laughs> poking in their their tie was thigh was, was not a problem at all because they yeah. poked poked elsewhere <laughs> so so i mean we had we had both categories of, of men um but but 
yeah, the, the sort of standard response was that this is no problem at all. And for people who aren't familiar with uh, biopsies, we're not chopping mm. off half the leg. It's uh, you're taking, you know, a kind of a, a, a consider the size of a pen, and you're going in, you know, half an inch into the muscle directly down and taking a sliver. Yeah. We, what we do is that we, you do you make an incision in the thigh with, with a scalpel and also in the sort of muscle fascia, and then um, as you said, a biopsy needle, maybe I think as a as a pen, maybe a, ours ours is a bit bigger actually, <laughs> Cause, yeah, because we when we go in there we we want sort of a, a chunk so we can do do a lot. So um, we actually get um, a couple of hundred uh, milligrams when we do. Um, when we do our studies, but compared to the number of kilos that your um, uh, knee extensors are, I guess yeah, it's it's minimal. Um, you won't even uh, you will not be able to sort of feel the difference. And it's not not really. I mean, um, sometimes you can feel some discomfort as as we we make the the cut, but in most cases you don't. And the day after you can. It's it's been yeah like you've been kicked in the thigh or something like that. Then it also pass over. Um, so so it's not yeah these guys um, of course the ones that signed up for it had no problem with the, either the procedure or the following days. So let's talk about what you were looking at with them and, and mm. what you found from mm. from the biopsy. Yeah, what we what we observed sort of at baseline um, that was. Um, somewhat concerning actually was a really low number of um, these muscle precursor cells that are we are labeled uh, satellite cells so these satellite cells are important for um, regeneration of, of the tissue and also supporting um, uh, muscle hypotrophy uh, there are some debates going on within this sort of muscle physiology um, communities but um, sort of an overall um, Description or response description of the response to to um, to strength training when when the muscle increases in size, it's that um, it needs to add more myonuclides for for supporting that growth. Um, remember that muscle cells are quite big actually, and they need um, a huge number of of nuclides to to um, to um, sort of control and and do maintenance on on the cellular mass or cellular volume. So as the muscle cell is increasing in size, you need to add more, uh, more myonuclides or nuclei to, to, to the growing muscle cell. So this is where the satellite cells come in. So they are um, sort of muscular stem cells, if you like, that can fuse with the existing, existing um, uh, muscle fiber and thus support its growth. Um, there are some debates about the importance of these satellite cells that there could be a threshold somewhere that the muscle cell can increase so and so much in size before it's needed and stuff like that. But um, at least the sort of overall consensus is that you need satellite cells at one point for, for the muscle cells to grow. Um, so what we observed at baseline uh, was a really low number of these cells, uh, maybe one-fourth of uh, what we count, again, in, in healthy elderly men. Um, so, yeah, really low numbers. We're not quite sure what to make of that. Uh, yet, but it's somewhat concerning if it involves uh, regeneration of the tissue and also supporting growth. Um, we know that these satellite cells are sensitive to testosterone, and we know from human studies if you increase testosterone, meaning that you give 
um, anabolic steroids or other sort of um, testosterone um, uh, supplements, um, you get a dose response in, in the increase in, in, in satellite cells. And they also tend to increase from strength training. But yeah, we didn't see that either in, um, in, in our study. So there could be some um, background mechanisms that are really attenuating uh, the normal response to, um, to, um, to strength training. I'm not sure if we can label, sort of put all that blame on these satellite cells, but at least that's one factor that, that is, is often reported on. It's interesting because I was going to ask you whether you thought that was a consequence of, of aging or, or treatment, and which you were saying mm. it's a, a third of kind of age-matched healthy controls. Yeah, and, uh, yeah. That's something that has, has any other work, has this work been done in any other, um, in any other prostate cancer populations? Um, not that I know of. Um, there are one group um, in the U.S. that's done some muscle biopsy work. Uh, they did an acute study looking at muscle protein synthesis, which is sort of the driving factor of the increase in muscle size. Um, and they also reported that the baseline um, synthesis rates, meaning that sort of the, uh, it could be related to regeneration uh, of the tissue also, uh, but the incorporation of new muscle proteins, um, the, the rate of increase of new my, uh, muscle proteins are, are lower in, in androgen-deprived men compared to um, healthy controls. Um, so I think we may need more insight into these um, um, basic physiological um, processes that occurs and um, that's actually where we headed with our next project but we can talk about <laughs> that later maybe <laughs> uh, yeah so, so we need to learn more there, there yeah of course when you when you lower uh, when you remove a, a potent anabolic stimuli uh, at least for which is important for uh, maintenance um, it could have some um, undiscovered side effects since since no one is actually looking into mechanisms so there could be there could be an area to uh, for the future research to actually dig into and start studying mechanisms more maybe also as exercise physiologists we could use that knowledge to um, prescribe uh, exercise um, in a different manner perhaps this is kind of more of an abstract question but with so much of our work focused on changes in lean body mass and body composition, you know, I think it is, this is more of a comment than a question. <laughs> uh, in terms <laughs> of, of moving forward, I think we need to start to look at um, the addition of dietary interventions with this. Mm. Um, and yeah. I'll, I'll give you an, an example. What, what's been really interesting is um, from your work and some of our group at Eda Cowan, um, all of our strength training programs do a lot to to improve lean body mass, but have a hard time shifting fat mass. And yeah. um, where I just came from Ohio State with Dr. Brian Foe, he does lifestyle mm. interventions focused on weight management and mm. puts aims to get people, you know, eating better, but, you know, moving towards a caloric deficit. And what we see mm. or what we saw in our, our kind of pilot trial was stabilization of lean body mass, but you know, pretty significant drops in fat mass, you know, mm. uh, which we attributed to the fact that they were in a caloric deficit. 
So it almost becomes a discussion of, well, what's more important, the drop in mm. fat mass or the increase in lean body mass? And then yeah. it definitely highlights the need to to look at, you know, particularly as you were mentioned, sarcopenia and cachexia. If we're looking to arrest these mm. conditions, diet is going to be a big thing to, to, to mm. talk about and look at. Yeah, and I, and I totally agree on that comment. Um, we, need to, we need to incorporate... Um, the diet as well in into our studies. Uh, we had this discussion with uh, with a registered nutritionist um, the other day. Um, that was kind of surprised. Why didn't we collaborate more? And I totally agree. We need to uh, <laughs> we need to do a better job with focusing on the entire lifestyle because um, you know um, even men with normal uh, lean body masses get chronic diseases due to their um, fat mass. So. Um, the um, resistance training may not be all. That's that's true. There is one study, one Danish study. It's right, not sure. I think it includes like forty men or something like that. So it's a decent size coming from an exercise uh, trial. Uh, but they did a cycling intervention and they actually saw a decrease in 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 uh, in body fat. So it could be just sort of the nature of of the intervention that we are prescribing. Yeah. But at, yeah, at least at, um, at your um, in your group, they are you're, they're also including the aerobic component of, of the exercise. Um, yeah, we we didn't do that. <laughs> we were aiming on the thighs. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, it, it also makes sense as well. In in you know, you could probably tell my big perspective is is the practical applications and the takeaways from these mm. things and. If we're, if there's practitioners listen to this, what can they take away? And uh, beyond what are what you're trying to show in improving lean body mass or strength training specifically, if you take this mm. on an individual level, some people are going to need to lose body fat more so than gain lean body mass. Mm. Others are going to need to gain lean body mass who are maybe really frail um, and don't have a lot of body fat. So it it comes back to then. You know, we can we can talk about the studies, but the practical application it, it keeps going mm. back to an individual basis. Yeah, yeah, it does, it does. It really, it really needs to. I mean, the principle of uh, of specificity, right, and and the individual need. So you need really need to to look at the person in front of you and and um, and try to figure out um, what what he or or she needs. Um, so so I guess. The practical application of this is that you need to scope the entire literature <laughs> and, and just and just learn as much as you can. But also from practical experience, of course, you can't really learn that reading papers. But if if we're talking about um, the literature in, in prostate cancer, um, you could you could sort of take um, the Galvao studies or from studies that have come out of your group um, uh, the last decade, maybe. Um, and you can have that as sort of the, uh, the the standard, and then you can look at ours, uh, our trial. We we compared to your trials, we have increased the training volume uh, quite a bit, maybe too much. Um, but anyway, that <laughs> that that didn't that didn't do much, right? So so we report pretty much pretty much a similar um, training responses in terms of lean mass that you did. Um, also, we did report similar changes in fat mass. So um, our trials are comparable. Uh, our uh, our two trials, sorry, the, your group and our group's trials are comparable. Uh, but then again, you have the time um, versus uh, effects aspect. So you can sort of leave our study behind. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
but then on the other end, um, there is this one trial. It's it's uncontrolled, and and that's a pity because it loses sort of um, scientific impact. But I think it has a great application. Um, so this trial from from Hansen et al. Uh, what they did is that they um, they used a really heavy load, and um, by decreasing the training load as the muscle uh, reached fatigue, they actually did 15 re- repetition uh, repetition starting out with a with a training load that it could only uh, lift five times. So that's um, a huge um, mechanical stimulate to the muscle and it's prolonged so the training volume is also increased um so if if you still follow my rationale here uh, we we try to increase the the training volume that didn't do much these guys tried to increase the training load and that led to a quite a, a quite quite good response actually compared to to other trials um there are other also some aspects um uh, in, with that study that might explain their results, the huge impact on, on lean body mass. I think the, the patients uh, were more on a chronic uh, adrenaline deprivation compared to our guys that was fairly um, uh, new to the, to the treatment. So that could also influence these results. But it, um, at least it's, it's worth looking into different training variables and how you can manipulate um, um, the training um, regimen for for different people and and it could be uh, based on these three groups and <laughs> um, it, it could be a rationale for for trying to pursue um, higher um, higher training loads actually um, provided uh, the technique and everything is okay that was eric hansen right mm, uh, yeah exactly so yeah um, essentially he was doing drop sets for, yeah. To put it in bro terms. For, yeah. 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 Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it, it's actually a really. This is what excites me about where the field is going now because if you look at, um, you know, Kerry Cornier, Katie Schmitz, and the leaders of the field, the work they had to do to get us off the ground and just prove, not prove, but support yeah. safety and efficacy. Yeah. yeah. They've given us the platform to go like, now that's all cool. Now we can look at those yeah. response. Yeah. which is, yeah, is, exactly. is the fun stuff, right? So it's funny talking about comparing across three different groups and three different countries uh, brings us to uh, the next portion where we're talking about the idea and the need to um, be better at reporting uh, training components of the intervention mm. because a lot of work in, in our area, uh, someone, uh, it was Jesper Christensen, had a really mm. good point. He kind of said... Um, it's it's almost been assumed for a while that the exercise oncology world is low hanging fruit because mm. there's there's you know rel- relatively there's not a lot of work done in this area so people can take you know breast cancer survivors twenty years gone take them to a strength training mm. program to get stronger and fascinating mm. which mm. is what we'd expect <laughs> but then the, the yeah. description of the the exercise is can be vague at times and. Yeah, you know, at least from a scientific perspective, we need to understand if if you're seeing these outcomes, what are you doing to elicit these outcomes? So mm. a lot of times you'll see methods and say we took them through a 12 week supervised program and um, mm. we progressed them in an individualized yeah. manner, and that's it. You can't really, you don't know what sets, you don't know what you know. It's very yeah. hard to take away a lot from that study. So yeah. Um, yeah, give us give us a background on on your recent paper that I really enjoy, and I'll, I'll put in the the link of the need to report guidelines and kind of what you 
we're looking at with, with that paper. Yeah, thanks for, for the kind words. And and you actually summarize the background or the rationale for this study uh, or this paper uh, quite well. Um, Sorry, cause, took your... <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> I mean, I'd rather have you do it. So, yeah, I don't need to brag about my stuff. That's also a Norwegian thing. <laughs> but, um, but, but anyway, um, the, the rationale or the background for this study was, was actually the, the, the sort of dismal um, reporting of of exercise interventions, uh, but also um, how, how training adherence is reported, because that's coming coming from from sort of a, a clinical uh, practice. You um, you know that um, whenever a patient walks in the door, um, you you adjust your your schedule to fit um, uh, the patient as he or she is today, right? So you, you make adjustments, and that's fine. But it needs to be reported, because you cannot you cannot uh, in the method sections report what you what you intended to do, and then in the results section um, to to sort of make a an argument for that your intervention is feasible, um, you just report how many sessions um, the the patient attended on average, because uh, there's just so many um, adjustments that that goes on in exercise trials. Um, and and they are needed, uh, but we need to report them better in order to to capture that uh, and to I don't know be be more honest when when we report um, or what we are what we are reporting the effects of if you if you like. And that's uh, that's where this this paper came out. And, and this was um, I was I was so lucky I was uh, going over to um, to Lee Jones Lab uh, at Memorial Sloan Kettering. Uh, in New York, and he came up with this idea, and, and he sort of launched this um, this uh, thoughts as pretty early when I during my stay. And uh, to be honest, I didn't quite believe him at first because <laughs> because he was yeah uh, he he's really sort of he, he's he, yeah he's he's smart, and, and you really need to sort of um, I mean you, you believe him when he talks because he's so convincing, but then then the skeptic in me sort of couldn't quite believe that it was <laughs> it was so bad so uh sort of behind his back i did my own sort of mini literature review uh, so uh <clears throat> i was looking at these feasibility trials um just just to figure out sort of how, how how do we report we as in the exercise oncology world how do we report training programs and how do we report adherence and I was actually quite surprised i had to say i, I won't give any names of, of these papers <laughs> so just sort of on, on a very broad and general uh, <laughs> notion that I was actually surprised of, of the way we go about things um, so um, and, and I and I totally agree we really need to, to step it up um, the way that we report both the the, um, the, the details of our training prescription but also um, so that's that's the prescribed, uh, that's what we intend to do, but also what's actually been going on in uh, during during the intervention. So that's that's the whole rationale for for this paper, actually. Yeah, and it it makes sense. I mean, if again, if you look at your intervention of sixteen weeks or some of ours who are year yeah. long, and mm. we set, we report, um, we did one three sets, eight twelve reps, and we progressed it. So you're telling me that every single person did exactly three sets of exactly 12 reps for this many weeks and no one missed any weight and there were no, you know what I mean? No. Yeah. yeah. You know, practically true, true. it just doesn't make sense. And 
even when you when particularly when you move into you know during chemotherapy where it's a little bit more intense with the side effects mm. there are a lot mm. more adjustments that yeah. need to be made and maybe yeah. you know in particular with resistance training maybe we need to drop the intensity way down or maybe we found that mm. dropping the volume was was a better way to attenuate some of the fatigue um those exactly. those are really important pieces to report mm. especially when we come back to the translational piece we as as researchers understand that the nice pretty manuscript that we published three years after the study is is not exactly what what happened and we can understand the nuances of it but if you're a pr practitioner that's not trained in this area and you just want the takeaway mm. you don't get the yeah. nuances of well listen you know most people were able to tolerate this but a couple of people actually we need to reduce the load and there's yeah. nothing inherently wrong with that it's information mm. and that information is really important yeah exactly exactly these are i mean um in in a in a clinical setting th these are the adjustments that you do to uh, accommodate exercise in these patients um so uh, i would be very surprised if this did not occur in in uh, scientific <laughs> studies as well uh I yeah i would i would question the ethics of <laughs> of forcing yeah. um exercise on patients and sort of for for whatever cost so the i mean these these are all adjustments that that this is totally understandable and it's 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 the right thing to do but we just need to report them um and and uh, make this information um available because this is actually where we can we can harvest sort of clinical uh, relevant experiences from uh, sort of a, a rather uh, maybe a, maybe a science, sort of scientific interventions are run more strict than than in the clinical setting, but we need to show that these nuances occur um, in 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 science as well. Yeah, I mean it's it, it's humans that we <laughs> exactly uh, that, that you train and, and of course they're not they're not. Uh, uh, lab rats that run on a treadmill and sort of um, gets motivated by I don't know electricity to to continue running. We don't we don't do that <laughs> exactly. So these these are all adjustments that it's 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 okay, but it just needs to be. I mean it's 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 uh, it's more than okay. It's actually uh, needed. So, uh, but we need to report them also. So in this in this paper we um, we uh, came up with a number of uh, metrics for how this could be reported. We're not saying that it's the only way, but it's, it's sort of a suggestion of, of how we could, um, how we could um, facilitate this in, in exercise trials. Because um, what, what we did when we started um, working on this paper that we were actually, I was, I was actually plotting a lot of training diaries, a lot of training logs. Uh, so that was my one of the first tasks that I did at MSK. Um, so I was <laughs> reading intense. training logs, yeah, exactly, and then doing sort of plotting just tons of numbers. Uh, so it's a lot of work, um, and that that needs to be sort of we need to be honest about that as well. I mean, reporting exercise trials, it it is a lot of work. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, especially when you, you do everything on, on sort of on the back end when you have all your training <laughs> logs in and you, that's 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 what you're going to do the next couple of weeks. <laughs> uh, but but what we did, we were actually looking at uh, pharmacological trials um, because they report on on medi sort of medical doses, right? So we we were interested in in how we could learn from from all of these. Um, 
uh, trials in in, uh, in pharmacology that was already out there. I mean, how do you report um, medical doses from a phase one trial when you try a new drug for the first time? Or how do you, I mean, how do you go about reporting on safety and and all these kind of things? Uh, we were also looking at how. Um, medical doses was um, visualized using figures, so that that's that's where we sort of came up with our suggestions, and uh, they're all included in, or most of them are included in in, in the paper. We had, we, yeah, we had a lot of <laughs> trial and error here as well. Uh, <laughs> Try to figure out what's the best way to present this. But we uh, one of the things that we did we came up with with the, the relative dose intensity. Um, which means uh, the relative difference between the prescribed exercise dose and the actual or the accomplished uh, exercise dose. Uh, just looking at the, the the differences between these two uh, metrics. So if you if you have a, a perfect attendance and a perfect adherence to your uh, exercise prescription, that would lead to a relative dose intensity of 100%. Yeah. Uh, but, but then if you make adjustments along the way or if you had to skip a session or if, um, yeah, if you have to dose modify one session because of fatigue or whatever, nausea or doesn't really feel good, then your um, REI or relative dose intensity are, are, are dropping. And um, that's, that's one way of reporting um, the sort of... Um, exercise dose it gives it gives the perspective of of what you intended to do and what what were actually being done so that's that's sort of the the backbone of our uh, metrics that we are suggesting that sort of yeah putting it out there what's great about that is you can kind of do two things with it is one when you kind of have it presented as you know planned sessions versus completed sessions and then you also have uh, sessions that were completed as planned, sessions where dose was reduced, mm. or sessions that were missed. And that allows you to potentially better explain differences in outcomes. But it mm. also, when you're talking about the prescription, that allows you to, to do a better job of modifying and progressing the prescription appropriately. Because if, if you just have yeah, three sets of 10 at 100 pounds, and you just write that down and you don't you don't hmm. write down that they need an adjustment maybe they only did six reps or maybe you had to drop the weight to 80 pounds those are hmm. what allow you to adjust the training throughout as well um what i also like about the paper was um how you report um how you report those modifications and reasons for those which is really hmm. important and i'm sure there was Again, when you talk about a lot of work and figuring out the reasons and then reporting all those, um, an early session termination and then um, different things like that because adverse events are, again, rarely reported in our field. Um, mm. I don't know if it's, it's, a, it's a fear of, of, of reporting adverse events, but mm. again, if you look at globally when people exercise, some people eat like crap before and they get dizzy. Some people push themselves mm. too much and they get nausea. There's no reason for that to be different in a cancer population, particularly if you look at a year-long no. training with hundreds of people. So um, mm. it's unlikely that when we talk about adverse effects, we're not talking about extreme cancer treatment alterations or you know uh, severe adverse effects, but stuff like nausea mm. and too much mm. muscle pain, mm. that stuff happens all the time. 
So being yeah. able to provide rationale for why you modify the dose based on those is really important too. Mm, yeah, exactly. And I mean, there's just a, a better potential to learn, I guess. Um, so, I mean, from from, from the uh, training studies that, that are out there, if, if we report these things, um, and it, yeah, it's true, it took a lot of work just to uh, figure out which buckets we should use <laughs> yeah. for, for science. I mean, because uh, this, this was, uh, we started this work um, way after the intervention was finished. So this was sort of, um, the, the, this is, this, the first paper was one in, in prostate cancer where they did, um, they did um, aerobic training and, and the trial was finished and all, the results are, were already published actually. So we were backtracking the training logs, trying to interpret it, uh, interpret sort of uh, handwriting of the instructions uh, oh way back God. then, and and, <laughs> and uh, yeah, try to come up with with reasons. Um, but we were able to, we, we did a pretty good job talking to. We were able to track down all most of the the instructors, and uh, uh, well. Of course, they couldn't tell us what was going on on the fifth of April in back in <laughs> two thousand and ten, uh, but they had a general uh, impression, and we could sort of using their um, the sort of keywords that they've written down on the sheet. Could could you sort of come up with the reason? Is there any what what could be the reason for this, and what could be the reason for that? But as you can see, um, there are a lot of sessions that are missed or those modified for reasons not known. But if you if you um, if you start if you're starting an intervention sort of today or or in the near future, you could you can implement this uh, from from the start, and that really cuts down the workload uh, doing yeah. this. You can sort of report this uh, as the intervention is moving along, and and that's where we that's where we need to be. We need to. Uh, in a similar, I mean, we we talk about exercise uh, being medicine, but then if we don't really know what's going on throughout the intervention that you're supposed to base this knowledge on, um, just so yeah, we just need to do a better job reporting on on exercise doses. And I mean, there are rules and regulations on how you should report medical doses, so I can't see why we should do a uh, why we should do a not do a as good job in, in exercise. Yeah. Um, but as, as you can see, there, there are no severe adverse events that went on or serious adverse events that went on throughout the intervention. But it's, I mean, it's, it's, um, it's, it's important to know for, for trainers moving into this field that you could experience nausea, you could experience fatigue, you can extreme, uh, you could experience, uh, uh, pain of, of, um, some, for some reasons. And I mean, all these variables matters when you, when you have people in front of you. And what, what I like about what you said was um, this isn't the definitive guide of how to do this. It's more yeah. of a call to arms. And it's very likely that as you move forward, particularly, you know, this paper was primarily with aerobic training. I think um, resistance mm. training is a little bit more nuanced. We'll keep, <laughs> we'll keep refining it as we move forward. But yeah. the fact that it was published in MSSC and a big audience, particularly in the exercise oncology world, mm. I think that kind of shook us up a little bit and go, yeah, let's wake up. And you're saying what a lot of people have been thinking for a while, and and it's kind of mm. a clear pathway. And okay, particularly if you if you're doing aerobic exercise, this is a a pretty good model to follow, you know. Mm. Yeah, at least it's, it's one suggestion. I mean, as you can see from from other figures uh, within the paper, we we break this down to. Um, to report on different sessions so you can actually uh, watch uh, how the uh, relative dose intensity um, changes over time. I mean, if, if you start an exercise trial, you are highly motivated from the start, right? But then as the intervention goes along, there would be more uh, 
adjustments that needs to be made and you can see that from from one of our figures and we also broke it down into different zones this was also a undulating periodized um, training uh, intervention so we can break it down to to different type of uh, of sessions ranging from some one some two some three some four and some five sessions some five sessions being sort of the the, the more um, the higher intensity sessions uh, interval sessions so um, you could you could uh, when you're reporting on, on, on feasibility you can actually um, report with higher uh, specificity to, yeah. to sort of as the intervention progresses and also how uh, it affects different uh, different type of, of sessions because it could be that uh, the lower intensity sessions were were well tolerated whereas the higher intensity sessions were not tolerated at all so yeah and and sort of the the average attendance rate was okay so so yeah um so it just adds uh, more nuances to to how we report stuff i think and as as you said it's it's not the definitive way of doing it but but it's 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 one way of doing it and for i agree for resistance exercise or resistance training we need uh we need a whole new sets of of uh, of, of terms i think that's this yeah it's just um I was I was I've been thinking about this actually for some time how to how how we would go about making the same guidelines for for resistance exercise and that's not easy no because uh, you um, you end up prescribing uh, uh, prescribing uh, training load at least uh, in a sort of a percentage of your maximum but then your maximum changes right yeah um so i'm not quite sure how to do this <laughs> um, I'm, I'm open for suggestions yeah no it's i think it's, it's something we can probably talk about because <laughs> then there's other people who who don't <clears throat> use percent one one rm you know mm. they just mm. kind of use a rep max um yeah and then you know what variables are you reporting are you reporting absolute volume relative mm. volume and mm. um, just mm. sets reps weight uh mm. it's uh yeah it's interesting isn't it? <laughs> yeah 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 it's but so, it, it's more difficult in resistance training that's for sure that's for sure but we need those metrics up and running as well so this next uh uh, section of the podcast is people are going to listen to you and I go back and forth for an hour and a half while we figure out how to prescribe and report <laughs> resistance exercise. <laughs> yeah, I would, I would, I would stay tuned for that. <laughs> um, what are you working on right now? What's what's cool and new and exciting in Norway? And um, you talked a little bit about some studies you're working on and, and kind of what areas you're diving into. Um, so currently we're, or we just opened up for, for recruiting, uh, more prostate cancer guys, actually, uh, we're going to do a follow-up of our study or try to dig in more into the individual variation. Um, so the next study we're going to do, um, starting, uh, in August, uh, would be a, a study where we compare, um, uh, prostate cancer patients that are on, uh, androgen deprivation therapy to, against patients that are not patients that have been undergoing surgery or received radiation, but never um, received androgen deprivation therapy. So we're going to do a sort of a, a more experimental setup uh, within these two patient populations. And we're going to look at um, basal uh, protein, protein synthesis rates, as we've been talking about earlier. Uh, we're going to um, go after the um, intramuscular signaling that leads to 
um, muscle protein synthesis, and we're gonna uh, see how uh, these guy respond responds to um, starting resistance training. So we're gonna look at we're gonna be looking at the first um, couple of sessions because we believe that if there is a difference, uh, we should be able to see that um, from the get go. I mean, that's that's where the training stimulus is um, sort of most unfamiliar within these patients, and we think that. If there is a difference between uh, patients that get androgen deprivation towards uh, the ones that, that don't, we, we will be able to see that during the initial phase. Um, so this is, this is sort of a more, um, going back to being more sort of uh, lab-based, more uh, basic sciences maybe, but I think we could learn um, a lot on training prescription, depending on what we see, of course. Um, but yeah, that's that's one study that we just opened up for for recruiting uh, patients. And you would you were mentioning earlier that patient could be or participants could be reluctant to undergo muscle biopsies. Uh, in this study, we're, we're going to do a lot of muscle biopsies, and uh, <laughs> we already. <laughs> I mean, we have we're aiming to. It's a small study. We were going to be including um, twenty patients on. Um, hormonal therapy or androgen deprivation therapy and 20 patients without. So it's, it's sort of, we have 40, um, spots that are open and we've been recruiting since June and we're, we're halfway full already. No way. So these, these guys, these guys are just lining up <laughs> ah, and, and I am, I am, I am being, being as honest as I can. I'm, I'm telling that there could be some discomfort. Um, you could be sore the day after, um, we do this on a routinely basis, so there's no other sort of known hazards uh, involved, but, but you could be sore and could be painful. And yeah, all these guys that sign up, they go like, yeah, they've been, as you said earlier, poking me <laughs> uh, several times already. So that this, this will be a walk in the park pretty much. <laughs> so we are, we are, we are super excited about that and, and they really, uh, they really are interested in, in what we are doing. So, um, so I'm really looking forward to to get getting started and also to be able to report back on on what we what we see from that. How long is your intervention? Oh, that's super short actually. Um, it's it, this is more about the, the initial about the lab, yeah, the, the initial responses. So we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna how technically how technical can we be? Go for it. Go for it. <laughs> we'll lose a few. No, but... What do we go? <laughs> Exactly. Uh, so what we're going to do is that we're going to have patients uh, drink uh, detorium. Um, it's, it's sort of similar to, to heavy water, if you're familiar with that. Uh, it has a slightly heavier hydrogen atom uh, that we can later track into their muscle structure. And there, if there's a lot of um, heavy hydrogens within the muscle structure, you can know that there has been... Um, an increase in muscle protein synthesis, and we can sort of calculate this based on the uh, the time from uh, when they uh, drank uh, the heavy water to to when we did the muscle biopsy. Um, so it's it's a really short setup due to the halftime of of uh, of the sort of tracking uh, of our of our tracking mechanism. So the, we're only going to be looking at three exercise sessions, to be honest, um, and. Still, the patients are lining up. They are really interested to to learn and to see how this works. So we offer them uh, we offer them uh, exercise 
guidance moving forward since they are sort of um, sacrificing time and, and effort to be in our lab and to help us collect data. So we're going to, we're going to, uh, this sort of off study, we're going to uh, keep providing them with, with the exercise programs and stuff like that to, to sort of compensate for, for their time and effort here. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a really sort of lab based study yeah. that we're going to look into now. So hopefully we'll be finished with all 40, uh, participants, uh, before Christmas. So we'll be, Very yeah, cool. we'll be, hopefully we'll be busy, <laughs> but we're also going to look into, um, look into, um, insulin sensitivity and we're going to do, um, uh, sort of uh, blood glucose responses to meals and also measuring uh, muscle protein synthesis responses to to the meal. So we're going to, yeah, it's sort of, uh, yeah, highly experimental setup this time. <laughs> Very cool. But it's it's going gonna, it's gonna to offer some really, uh, really interesting information, as you said, potentially identifying differences and particularly the effects of mm. treatment. So um, I look forward to, to seeing the results in two and a half years. <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah i think that's a that's a that's a feasible timeline <laughs> um, but listen uh, i i can't thank you enough for all your time it was uh it was a really uh great chat and, and a fascinating insight into some of your work and and uh i'm really excited to see what comes out of your lab in the coming years hmm. uh, thank you so much for for having me on I'm, a, I'm actually a big fan of your podcast i've been recommending this for for our students, we have we have a separate course in in exercise uh, oncology, uh, where where we uh, where I teach a lot of uh, a lot of the classes. So I've uh, encouraged our students to uh, to follow your podcast, and I think a lot of them took them on. So Very I'm cool. super super excited to be here. So hi everyone. <laughs> Keep, keep um, yeah, reading. hello, That's students. Or my students. Yeah, <laughs> students, go back to your books, right? <laughs> I know, I know it's summer, but you're, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you learn pretty quickly in research. There's no summers. Um, no, where exactly. can people find you? Uh, get in touch with you. Um, they can reach out to me on Twitter. Um, I guess I should have my Twitter account name <laughs> ready for you, but that's at t s n i l s. There you go. That's you not my full name. You're welcome. <laughs> thank you so much <laughs> cool so I'll throw that in the in the links as well and uh, as I said listen it was a great chat and uh, all the best with your upcoming work thank you